0: Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked.
1: We're going to start with this quote from uh, a Second Vatican Council document called Gaudium et Spes, which was one of the council documents that... Um, when I say the Second Vatican Council, I'm talking about that just gigundo meeting that happened in Rome in the years, like 1960s. Um, they do say it was the world's largest meeting, you know? I really wasn't a punchline there, but uh, that's just kind of the truth. Anyway, so Vatican Council, Gaudi Metzpez was a document that John Paul II, Carol Wojtyla, had a huge hand in writing. And we hear this in Gaudi et that when God is forgotten, the creature becomes unintelligible, the creature becomes unintelligible. Who's this uh, painting by? Who knows? What's his name? Who's the artist? No, that's, this is Edvard Munch. This is his, what's this painting called? We all know this. The Scream, The Scream. This is a uh, self, not self-portrait, this is a portrait. That'd be awful. <laughs> this is a portrait of Macaulay Calkin in Home Alone, right here. Um, <laughs> This is a portrait of modern man. This is a portrait of modern man. Totally cut off, bereft, lost, confused, in so much pain. So much pain. You know, I was thinking, you know, before we even began the night, I was just talking to Chris about how, I mean, who's, who's seen what happened at the Grammys? Who's heard of what happened at the Grammys the other night? OK, so if you don't know, God bless you. Uh, but this is what happened at the Grammys the other night. Um, some artist, I, what's his name, Sam Smith. Um, Sam Smith, not his. what's that?
0: Not his
2: name,
1: name. I don't understand.
2: Oh, it's not binary.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry, yeah. I, did I just dead name him misgender? It was violent, it was very violent what I just did. Um, Basically on stage for the world to see there was a whole like satanic ritual that unfolded on stage He was dressed up as the Satan figure um, and the duo counterpart is a transgender Woman man who transitioned from a boy to a girl at 16 all surgeries at 16 That's a minor by the way, right? anyway, um, but what you saw on stage were all of these androgynous figures swirling around the devil. It's just in plain sight now. It's just so out in the open that the enemy hates the sex distinction. We're going to dive into this tonight, but he hates the sex distinction. He, he's, he's in, he wants androgyny. He wants, he wants to strip it all away. This is what he wants for modern man, this insanity, that we've become so unmoored from our own humanity, our origins. Where do we come from? All of those things, our story, we don't know who we are, and we're filled with a lot of pain. There's an amazing book I want to recommend to you. I mean, anything that she wrote, her name is Mary Eberstadt. Mary Eberstadt is amazing. Um, she wrote a book, it just got republished with a, with a new Ford, I think, called Adam and Eve After the Pill. Brilliant, brilliant work. How the West was really lost. Um, is a great one. But the book that she wrote that I read recently is called Primal Screams. Read Primal Screams. It'll explain what's happening in the world around us right now. Listen to this. Up until the middle of the 20th century, and barring the frequent foreshortening of life by disease or natural catastrophe, human expectations remained largely the same throughout the ages. That one would grow up to have children and a family, that parents and siblings and extended family would remain one's primal community, that again, barring the unforeseen, one would have parents and siblings and extended family in the first place. And and conversely, it was a tragedy not to be part of a family. The post-1960s order of sexual consumerism has upended every one of these expectations. It has erased the givenness into which generations are born. Who am I is a universal human question. It becomes harder to answer if other basic questions are problematic or out of reach. Who is my brother? Who is my father? Where, if anywhere, are my cousins, grandparents, nieces, nephews, and the rest of the organic connections through which humanity up until now channeled everyday existence. It is this loss of givenness that drives the frenzied search for identity these days. It's this, I'm going to say that again. You want to know what's going on on the streets, in college campuses, identity politics, it's this. It is this loss of givenness that drives the frenzied search for identity these days. To the question, who am I? An illiterate peasant of the Middle Ages was better equipped to answer that question than many people in advanced societies in our century. That's where you take the microphone and drop it. It's true. It's sad. Okay, so we're highlighting the fact that something happened in the 20th century. In fact, going back to the turn of the 20th century with Pope Leo XIII, he had a vision The Lord allowed him to have this vision of Satan being unleashed upon the church and the world in the 20th century. That the Lord would be, or that the enemy would be given a hundred years to unleash hell. Pope Leo XIII was so struck, so bowled over by this that he composed the prayer to St. Michael immediately after that. And he commanded that every parish, after every single mass, would say the prayer to St. Michael, because he saw what was coming. And boy, was he right. So in the midst of that bloody, crazy, the bloodiest century, this crazy, chaotic century that saw several world wars, all sorts of wars. You saw, especially in the midst of the century, you had Vietnam, you had assassinations, JFK, MLK, all the Ks, they're all getting assassinated. The unrest of the Civil Rights Movement, the full blossoming, the burgeoning of the sexual revolution. You have the advent of the birth control pill coming on the scene. You have dropping of actual nuclear bombs on civilizations. You have Woodstock in 1968, the era of hippies and free love, where everything was changing. Everything was being cast aside. And everyone thought that the church, like the rest of the world, was going to change, was going to update its teachings, especially about sexual morality. And right there in the midst of that craziness, in the midst of that century, you have the Lord raising up this unlikely hero, Pope St. Paul VI. Pope St. Paul VI, who bravely steps into the scene in the midst of this chaos, amidst insane mounting pressure. We're going to talk about this more later on in becoming Catholic, but amidst insane mounting pressure to change the church's teaching on contraception and birth control. And he releases this teeny tiny little document, so very small, but so much power, called *Humane Vitae, on human life, where he upholds the church's teaching that each and every act of intercourse needs to be both unitive and procreative. And he upheld the church's teaching against contraception, against insane mounting pressure from everywhere in the world. This is This is an amazing thing that he did that. Basically, he was so he was so attacked afterwards he didn't write another encyclical after that he just he just suffered as his church went to full-blown rebellion hating this teaching we'll talk about that more but in that encyclical where he up, where he upholds this teaching he said he said this is him by the way he said that we we need in order to understand this we need to recover an adequate anthropology as he says a total vision of man to understand the why, or to understand the what of the teaching, you have to understand the why behind the what. You have to have the overarching picture of what is a human person. Like, this is the heresy that our era of the church, the third millennium, is facing. The first millennium was dealing with Christological heresies. The church and the world was battling over the question, who is Jesus Christ? It culminates in a great split. Then you have the, the second millennium, you have ecclesiological heresies, where the church is wrestling with the question, what is the church? In this third millennium, we're dealing with anthropological heresy. What is a human person? It, it, nobody knows anymore. It used to be pretty obvious. It used to be obvious. So we need to recover an adequate anthropology, a new total vision of man. So we all go, aww. Uh? Oh, thanks for playing. Yeah, I just love this picture a lot. <laughs> okay, there's really no point to the picture. I just like it. Okay, so <laughs> adequate anthropology will answer these questions. What does it mean to be human? What is the meaning of our human embodiment? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And most importantly, how do we get there? This is what the world needs. This is is where, where Pope Benedict said we're living in a dictatorship of relativism. What he meant by that is the world, the secular culture through the power of the enemy is saying there is no answers to these questions. It's whatever you want, whatever you feel, whatever you feel. In order to answer the ought question, you have to first answer like the is question. I know that sounds weird, but listen to this. Like, you have to know what a thing is before you can answer the question, what sorts of things will make this thing flourish? Like, should I do this or that, right? So let me give you an example. Like, ought I throw this thing off a bridge? Ought I, is it okay if I submerge this thing underwater? Would it be good if I burned this thing? What's the question you're wondering? What is it, right? If I'm talking about a paper airplane, yeah, sure, throw it off a bridge. If I'm talking about a dog, no. <laughs> Don't do that. Why? Because it's not like according to the nature of dog, it's not gonna be good for the dog to be hurled off a bridge. I'm just suddenly seeing that scene at Anchorman where <laughs> What do you love? I love my dog Baxter. Well now this is happening. He, never mind. All right. <laughs> It's not good for dogs to be chucked off bridges, right? Not according to their nature. Like, or how about this? Like, um, yeah, is it OK if I submerge this goldfish underwater? Answer? Yeah. Yes. But this priceless piece of art? No, right? Or how about, uh, is it OK if I set your house on fire? No. How about uh, this marshmallow? Yeah, go for it, right? Actually, no one likes a burnt marshmallow. I don't care. I think the burnt marshmallow people are crazy, okay? If you're a burnt marshmallow person, go to confession. <laughs> Here's my point. Here's my point. Without understanding what the human person is, which includes answers to these questions, without understanding what a human person is, you won't be able to meaningfully answer the following Ought I, is it good? For me, not about me, Father Patrick Schultz, but like, you know, in general, is it good for me to fornicate, to view pornography? Is it good for me to attempt to marry and then have sexual relations with a person of my same sex? Is that good for me? Ought I do that? Is it good for me if I take puberty blockers as a child and then cross sex hormones as a teenager and then have, you know, radical surgery? as an adult to transition myself to appear to look like the opposite sex? Is that good for me? Is that the kind of thing that will promote my flourishing as a human being? Ought I? Is it good for me? Is it good for us as a couple to deliberately, intentionally sterilize our sexual activity through the use of contraceptives? Is that good? Ought I do that? The only reason, the only way you can answer any of those questions is by first answering, well, what is a human person? What are the kinds of conditions under which that thing called humanity flourishes? You've heard me use this example before, but you go to Home Depot, to the garden center, you buy a plant. That plant comes with a little tag that tells you how much sunlight this plant needs, how much water it needs. Should it be in this part of the shade? Does it need to have space from other plants? Like, You're free to ignore all that, but you're not free of the consequences of ignoring it. That little tag, like, for humanity is the answers to these questions. So there's a quote. I, I don't know if we've looked at this quote yet this year, but I, I alluded to it in my prayer. This is from the Catechism, paragraph 1015. The Catechism is quoting Tertullian, who's a church father, where he says this. The flesh, not the soul, the flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is creator of the flesh. The flesh. We believe in the Word made flesh. Every time it says flesh, you're going to say it with me. In order to redeem the flesh, we believe in the resurrection of the? Flesh. The fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the? Flesh. So much flesh. So much flesh. All of this business of Christianity that you've ever heard that says, okay, the point of this life is to die, your body goes down here, and then your soul, disembodied, floats up to this spirit realm called heaven. That's Platonism. That's Gnosticism, that's dualism, that's certainly not Catholicism, that's not Biblical Christianity. Jesus came in the flesh for the redemption of the flesh, vis-a-vis the resurrection of the flesh, right? The whole movement of Christianity, the whole trajectory of Christianity is incarnation. The word becoming flesh, wedding himself to the flesh, and the enemy, the enemy is constantly moving in the opposite direction of ex Not incarnation, but ex Splitting the soul from the body. There's a technical term we have for that, for the splitting of soul from body. Anybody know what that is? Death. Very good, Robert. <laughs> death. This is what John Paul II meant when he called our culture a culture of death. Not just because we love and glorify death, but because we're constantly splitting apart soul from body, wanting to live, you know, this spiritual life apart from the body, all of those things. This St. John in his letter, he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, the Antichrist, the anti-word, the anti-logos. He says you can recognize the spirit of the Antichrist because he's the one who denies Christ come in the flesh. Anytime you see this movement of denying incarnation or denying incarnationality, that the flesh matters, like what you saw at the Grammys, the body doesn't matter. It can be this or that at the same time. It doesn't matter. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. The Antichrist, right? Christ is the word. We've talked about this. The Logos, he's the word. The enemy is the anti-word, That's who he is. And he's after the enemy. Think about this. The enemy is after all of the words. He's after all of the words that are critical for evangelization. He's trying to redefine and claim all of them for himself. He wants the word love. He wants the word marriage. He wants the word sex and gender. He's claiming all of these words for himself. Why? For confusion to, to, to blind us, to lead us so astray. Words like mother, words like father. No, there's, you don't need mother and father on the birth certificate anymore. Parent one, parent two. I'm not making that up. That's a reality. You know that? I think also in Canada, there's multiple lines, like more than parent one, parent two. How many parents do you want? Crazy, 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 crazy. Anybody know where this is? I'm I'm like quizzing you tonight real hard. I'm really, I'm sorry. Where is it? It's in D.C., yeah, the National Basilica of the Immaculate Conception. It's depicting the scene from Revelation where the enemy, who in Genesis appears as a little innocent snake, but in the book of Revelation, he's fully unveiled as what he is, which is horrifying, It says the enemy is like at the, like the woman is in travail about to give birth and the enemy is right there. You wanna see what this looks like in our modern world, just go to Planned Parenthood. Like this this is the enemy right there at the woman about to give birth to devour her child. The enemy is after our flesh. He's after our embodiment. He wants to confuse that sex distinction because he's going after, ultimately, the sex distinction is what makes possible the family. Remember how we talked about the human person made in the image of the Trinity? That through our complementarity, through masculinity and femininity, when the two become one, they become so much one that nine months later, you have to give it a name. And then they're three in one. Like the family is the living, earthly icon, the sign of the Trinity. And the enemy is after it. He's after the family. He's after life. So, any place where life is formed, where life is grown, or life is nurtured, he wants in there to destroy it. Like the original war on women is from hell, it's the only war on women. He hates your wombs, he hates your bodies. Because your body, my dear sisters, your body constantly reminds him of the one who ushers in his ultimate defeat. He hates the body of the woman. So this is why, this is why in the middle of the 20th century, he was going after the union of man and woman, right? If society, if the family is the, nuclear, the nucleus, no, if the, if the family is the building block, the cell of society is the family, The nucleus of the cell is the couple, the man and the woman, their complementarity, the the sex distinction, their capacity for communion that's life-giving. He was going right after it with contraception to split the atom bomb. That's what he was doing. But we have a pope. We had an amazing pope who comes in, at that moment in human history, and he looks at Satan, and he says this, I, I, I cropped it so the end was him going, <laughs> that's Pope Paul VI. Ugh. The enemy is after our bodies. He's after our bodies. Why? Because our bodies reveal God. Our bodies reveal ultimate mystery, right? The ultimate mystery entered this world in a body, which means now that the body, your body, my body, body, every body, now reveals ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is revealed through the body. Now the body reveals ultimate reality. So he's after the body. He's after the body. John Paul II in his theology of the body, this is the thesis statement. The body, in fact, and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible realm of, into the visible reality of the world, the mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. So this is where we ask the question again, what is the invisible mystery hidden from eternity in God that the body is a sign of? The Trinity, the Trinity. God's very being is love. God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has destined us to share in that exchange. Right? The body, masculinity, femininity, they reveal. Marriage reveals the self-giving, self-emptying love of God. The human person is made in the image and likeness of God. Again, here's from John Paul 2. Man appears in the visible world, World as the highest expression of the divine gift, because he bears within himself the inner dimension of the gift, and with it he carries into the world his particular likeness to God, with which he transcends and also rules his visibility in the world, his bodily, what does that say? Body. His bodilyness, his masculinity and femininity. My notes here <laughs> said his bodily nest. like that can't be right (laughs) so this is what this means we we express the divine gift that God's love exists in gift form he's always giving himself away right the father from all eternity is giving himself perfectly to the son the son from all eternity is receiving the love of the father and giving it back and that mutual gift exchange of perfect love, it itself is the gift person of the Holy Spirit. God's love exists as gift. So this means, if, like, if this is what we are created to instantiate, to make concrete, that means that our flourishing, our happiness, our joy is found in the measure that we resemble our God, in that we give ourselves away. You have to give yourself away. So where you think of St. Paul, right? St. Paul, who says, I am being poured out like a libation. The Greek word is kenosis, self-emptying. See if you recognize that head. (laughs) Here's a line from John Paul II from Gaudium et Spes. Man, who is the only creature on earth, which God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. You cannot have life unless you give your life away. That's the mystery of it. We're made in the image and likeness of a God who is gift love. In the measure that we give ourselves away, that's the measure that we are becoming who we were made to be. This truth, all of this, this is written, this is literally carved into our bodies. The body, your body, my body, every body, bears what John Paul II said, he called it the spousal dimension of the body. Like the body is saying, I am meant, like I am, I'm radically complete in every way except one way. I am meant to be given to the other, the complementary other. I am meant to be a gift that goes out of myself. The body of the man says this. The body of the woman says this. Our body has this spousal dimensionality. The body says, I am meant to be a gift. I am made for love. So, this whole life, like beginning in our families, this whole life, moving through vocations, moving through adulthood, all of it. This whole life is meant to be this great school of love where we are learning how to love. You're here for only one reason, to learn how to love, to be transformed into love. Like if heaven is an aquatic environment, this, the goal of this life is to cooperate with grace to grow gills. If heaven is love, well, you've got to become love. You've got to learn how to enter into the dance of the Trinity. Right? That's, the, that's the favorite word of the church fathers when they're describing the relationships of the person of the Trinity. They use the Greek word perichoresis, which means essentially the dance. That the Trinity is this endless dance of love. And you have to learn to be like this couple and enter the dance. Yes, I'm boogie like I'm going to play It's just an old piano and a knocked up bass The drummer, man's a Catholic, call kicking microphone The da- like, I, I'm exhausted watching it. Apparently, they're like 95, 96 years old. I think, here's my theory. Have you seen those videos where like star athletes put on like age, or like, like makeup where they look really, really old? I think that's like a Dancing with the Stars couple. That's my theory. I just, those hips, man, come on now. I don't know, all right, I joke, but here, let me show you this video. This, this is a couple, this is a couple who has truly learned to enter into the dance. This couple, let's watch. I
0: don't count it a burden whatever to have to care for her. I, I need to do everything from the moment she gets up to the moment she goes to bed. I do absolutely everything. Um, clean her teeth, I shower, dress, everything. And um, But it's, pr- it's a privilege. I count it a great privilege to to care for this one that I've loved all of these years and continue to love. This is the year when we'll celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. Our stories have been a, a lovely story. I first saw her when she was eight years old and her brother became my best friend. We grew up together and as we grew up, yeah, she was there and I knew that she used to stare at me when I was playing footy with my with her brother. and. Uh, another friend and when we used to ride bikes and she kept staring at me but I wasn't interested. I was 17, she was 16, I saw her dolled up, dressed up and she had an A-line dress on and boom, it was gone. I was uh, She was the one for me then, absolutely. <laughs> when we first started uh, dating I used to ride my bike from where I lived to where she was and that was about five kilometers on a Saturday afternoon because it was the only chance we had to get together. And uh, it was hair wash day for her and she used a special cream in her hair for a shampoo. And I can still smell it because that smell was so particular, so nice. It was just absolutely special. We had a bike. I used to ride everywhere on my bike and then Glad had a bike as well, and we put a, a baby chair on the front of her bike, and so we carried our babies around on the bike with her as well. So, yeah, bike's been part of our lives, and I guess that has something to do with us now. Around about 2004, 5 I began to notice um, that there were things going wrong. She was finally diagnosed with uh, the horrible disease of Alzheimer's. Having lived overseas, I knew that with a bike you can do lots of things. So I had a bike made, a bike chair made. We take it to the beach and ride along beside the beach. And As we do that, we see lots of people, a lot of people come talk to us because it's a unique thing. Nobody else has got a bike chair quite like that one. I am determined to care for her every need, every need. You see, God has loved us so unconditionally. And I understand that God has put his love in my heart. And because I realize how much God has loved me, that's how I too can love my lovely wife. She has done so much for me over all of these years. Now she can't, but I can, and I can return her love. And it's a love that, uh, well, to me, means I can do everything for her. She's my princess, I'm her William, and I wouldn't (laughs) have it any other way. Would you have it any other way? Oh, no, yeah. no, not at all. We love each other.
1: How about that tiara? Yeah. Welcome. It says everything, right? That's a couple that's, that's in the dance. That's what they're doing. OK, got to come out of that. So here you go. All right. <laughs> so what? is marriage, right? <laughs> marriage, it's what brings us together. All right, <laughs> Whew. I needed something to make me laugh after that. All right, this is the question, what is marriage? Good Lord, this is a question. From a secular cultural perspective, marriage is really whatever a couple wants it to be. It's whatever, whatever you want. It's about you and your person, or your persons. <laughs> Goodness gracious. OK. In the one of the things that, that Deacon Rich we, he, he would attest to this, too, that when we do marriage prep, um, most couples, um, like their imagination, their understanding of what marriage is, is way more informed by Hollywood, by TV and movies and uh, Pinterest boards <laughs> than the Bible.? right? It's way more secular. Secularly informed than it is biblically informed, um, that we have we, we're kind of putting together throughout the course of our lives this sort of collage of what marriage is. Right? Think of some of your favorite TV couples who got married. This is the ones I'm thinking about. You got your uh, you got your Jim and Pam, right from The Office. Okay. Uh, you got your uh, Ross and Rachel. You got your Cory and Topanga. This is speaking of my, you know, millennial heart right here. Um, some of you are like, who are these people? <laughs> if you want me to have older references, you're going to have to tell me who I should have up there. But these are who I got, okay? All right. Um, yeah. Why, here, here's the question. Why are there so... Uh, I just heard Kermit the Frog in my head. Why are there so many? Why are there so many stories about love? Why are there so many love songs? Aren't there enough love songs? Why are there so many love songs? Why are there so many poems about love? Why does, you heard me rant on this before, why does the Hallmark Channel make 50,000 new Christmas movies every year with the same plot and the same cast (laughs) and like they're just shifting the scenes, right? Why, 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 why do we want this everlasting love? Exactly, because we know we're made for it. We're hardwired for it, right? Every one of our stories, there's no fairy tale that that ends with, and they lived happily ever after for 10 years, and then it all ended in divorce. (laughs) Like, that's not how it ends. They lived happily ever after, period, right? Our hearts know we are made for, like we know this in our bones, we're made for an endless love, perfect love. Every culture, every people that has left us a written record of its existence has had the institution of marriage. Every culture. And marriage has always been between man and woman. Yes, in some cultures you have man and many women, but it's still man and woman, right? Why? Because there's an understanding here that only that kind of relationship is capable of bringing forth new life. Only adult sexual relationships between men and women can, are procreative in type. And the thing that babies need really bad are moms and dads. <laughs> Marriage is the institution that every culture has come up with from a, from a cultural anthropological perspective. Marriage exists in order to join man and woman to each other as husband and wife so that they can become mother and father to whatever child their union produces. Marriage is not, it's not about producing children. It's about the capacity for producing children. It's about the ability to become one flesh. And only a man and woman can become one flesh. Every child that exists has a mother and a father. Not every marriage will produce children, but every child comes from a, mar- uh, from a mother and father. This is why every civilization has marriage. This is why Jesus elevates marriage to the level of a sacrament. We're going to look at that in a second. But just watch, let's just watch this. This is so beautiful.
2: دامی که اولین داستان عشقم را شنیدم شروع به جستجویت کردم قافل از این که چقدر ناقص بود عاشقان در بایان به وصال نمی آنان همه وقت در هم درگیرند کوکو نی 完全なる生命の存在の証を誓い أَنْ لَكُمْ مِنْ أَنْفُسِكُمْ أَزْوَاجًا لِتَسْكُنُوا إِلَيْهَا وَجَعَلَ بَيْنَكُمْ مَوَدَّةً وَرَحْمَةً प्यार और दोस्ती अब अविभाज्य और मजबूत हो गए हैं मैं अपने आप को तुम्हें समर्पित करता हूं विदाता मैं आपकी पत्नी बन गई हूं मैं आपसे हमेशा प्यार करूंगी Συνεού των ιών αυτών ω νεόφιτα ελεών κύκλο τη τραπέζης αυτών. Την κίτην αυτών ανεπιβούλευ των διατήρησεων. Η αυτού και εμά αποπάσει λήψη, οργεί, κινδύνου και ανάγκη. Του Κυρίου Δηθόμενου. Dlatego opuści człowiek ojca swego i matkę i przyłączy się do żony swojej i będą dwoje jednym ciałem. Tajemnica to wielka jest, lecz ja mówię o Chrystusie
0: i o Kościele. Inach je farajotu, let me see your face. Let
2: me hear your
0: voice. For your voice is sweet
1: and your face is lovely.
0: The beams of
2: our house, are cedars, our rafters, cypresses. Me has robado el corazón, hermana y novia mía.
0: Me has robado el corazón con una sola mirada de tus ojos.
2: to my lover his yearning is for
1: me how beautiful right it's just amazing you know the when i think about what is happening in our culture in our world today I, I so much of my imagination and my mind has been formed by C.S. Lewis and J. R. R. Tolkien and in Lord of the Rings the what you see is these forces that want to like demolish and corrupt and smash life like it's, it's the, the ravishing of the the destruction of the shire. There's a shire hatred. There's a hatred for what's good and true and beautiful. Like that is good and true and beautiful. And there, there's an enemy who just wants to tear it down, just to tear it down. You know, this was a little aside here, but, um, Karl Marx, his favorite literary character is Mephistopheles from Goethe's Faust, right? The, the demonic character who said that everything that lives deserves to die. That's, that is the, that is the enemy. That is the enemy. He hates marriage. He hates what's good and true and beautiful. He hates all of that. Because it reveals God. So let's ask the question then, what is, from a Catholic perspective, what is marriage? Because it exists, you can see, it exists in multi, many cultures, right? It's a natural institution that Christ elevates to the level of a sacrament, which is a way of saying Christ elevates it to the level of a sign that reveals something more. So what is the thing that marriage reveals? It reveals Christ's relationship to the church. It reveals the marriage of heaven and earth. It reveals Jesus, the bridegroom, the church, the bride. And like the full church, the the church, the church here, like the church militant, that's us alive. The church suffering, that's those souls in purgatory and the church triumphant, the souls in glory, like Jesus. As the second person of the Trinity identifies himself as the divine bridegroom, the bridegroom of Israel, Yahweh, the bridegroom who comes in the flesh, the fulfillment of all of the promises, the fulfillment of the song of songs, the fulfillment of all of it, right? He came not just simply to rescue us from the clutches of sin and death and Satan. That is extraordinary news. We've been unpacking that news. Ah, there it is again. We've been. Un- Ugh, we've been going through that news. <laughs> it's, it's in my head. We've been. I need a synonym. Uh, we've been uh, exploring. <laughs> oh my train! Come back on the tracks. We've been. Uh, we've been unpacking. Okay, Chris. We've been unpacking that extraordinary news this whole year, looking at Christ as the victor over sin and death. Right, the one who. Uh, throws down the trafficker. But that's not even the best part, right? So go back in the analogy to Ariel Castro's basement with those three girls. They've been taken. They've been living in this captivity. A truer way of telling the Christian story would be like the SWAT officer comes into the basement, rescues Amanda Berry brings her out from that hell hole and then gets down on one knee with a ring. Like, the one who rescues us is the one who wants to, like, espouse us to himself unto eternity. Like, ev- and every single marriage, every single Christian marriage is meant to be a sign of Christ's marriage to the church. Every single Christian marriage is a re- revelation of Jesus' union. Right? So if, if, Humanae Vitae is the most hated church document of contraception. The church's teaching on contraception is the most rejected church teaching. Ephesians chapter 5 has to be one of the most hated verses in the Bible, right? Where you hear Paul say things like, wives, be subordinate to your husbands as to the Lord. Then he adds this, wives, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. By ordering her around, and bossing her and making her m- make him sandwiches. Isn't that how Christ loved the church? <laughs> that, that's, that's not in your Bible? No, by handing himself over for her, right? Then he adds this, in Ephesians 5, "For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This is a great mystery but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. See, what Paul is doing, he's quoting Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Pause. That's Genesis. That's Genesis. He's talking about earthly marriage, earthly complementarity, the earthly sign of human communion. Then he says, but this, that whole thing, like this thing on this horizontal level, this thing, he says, this is a great mystery. But I speak in reference to Christ and the church. Where is Christ? Right there, hidden in the host. Where is the church? Right there, kneeling in front of them. What have they done, that couple? They've come to that church on the day of their wedding to stand before each other to say, I, I love everything about you. I want to give you everything that I have. I lay my life down for you. I hand it all over. Everything that I have, I give to you. What is Jesus doing? He is this is my body given for you. They are making visible what he did on the cross. And what he did on the cross is being made visible by what they're doing. What they're becoming. This is astounding. This is why Paul says this is a, the Greek here is musterion mega. That's how you have to say it. Like the movie trailer guy, musterion mega. This summer, big mystery coming your way. (laughs) Every marriage is meant to be a little revelation of how Christ loved the church, his bride, you and me, which also means that every marriage is only Hear me rightly, every marriage is only a little, 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 teeny, tiny, teensy, weeny glimmer of the glory yet to be revealed. Every marriage, I don't care how good your marriage is, I don't care how good your sex life is, it, it's, it's ne- it was never meant to be the sum total of the full satisfaction of your heart. Like every married person... You were never meant to be the full satisfaction of your spouse. I see some nodding heads out there. <laughs> like, thank God. And you know the person who already knows it? Your spouse. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You are not meant to be all of that. You are, pl- you are pledging to be the one who, like, whets the appetite. Like, I promise to be the one who will help get you ready for the marriage supper of the lamb. I promise to be the one who will help you learn the dance steps of the Trinity. And like, we've got some beautiful couples out here. You've been married many, many years. They're like, when you were first married, like that dance was clunky. You were like awkward middle schoolers, like, you know, oh, this is so great. Plenty of room for the Holy Spirit. Plenty of room. you know. I remember middle school dances, like, because the girls are like 15 feet taller than the boys. You're like, you're like this, you know. Hello. <laughs> this is romantic, right? But those early years of marriage, those early years, you're, it's clunky and you're figuring out the dance and like you go into it thinking you know what you're doing, but then you're stepping on each other's toes and the dance pauses and you fight and forgive and you do it all over again. And then it's just, you're figuring out the dance. You're figuring it out. It's the dance of self giving love, of forgiveness and mercy. And the goal, the goal is not in this life. Like in your vows, every couple, when you've said your vows, you say something like, either, I promise to be faithful to you all the days of my life. Are there an infinite days in your life? No, because there will be a day when it's the last day of your life. Or the second form, until death do us part. Like your vows really only come to a climax upon your deathbed. What you're promising, what you're, what you're doing as a spouse is this dance that's happening from all eternity, you're entering into it. And then when one spouse closes their eyes on this world, it's like you hand them off to the bridegroom who's got his incarnate hand extended and invites you in, and the dance continues into eternity. Like this icon, notice this. That right, so this is an icon of the Trinity. We've been looking at this. You've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this sort of eternal, like, looking at each other. But this space right here, this open space that is that's the trinity's invitation come in come in like in every married couple you are like the window that gets us into the trinity getting married is a big deal Whew. Marriage was created by God in the beginning to be a sign that pointed to the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate marriage, which the book of Revelation calls the supper of the lamb, the supper of the lamb over and over again. In Revelation, heaven is described as this wedding feast. It better look something like this. This is an actual wedding reception I went to. It was bonkers. <laughs> there were senators there <laughs> and Secret Service people. <laughs> and I think I was being followed. <laughs> like marriage, again, it's a sign. It's a sign that's pointing to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, I, I, this is the image that always comes to my mind. When I was younger, my family would go down to Hilton Head for our summer vacation. There was always signs along the way as you're driving down there. You know, 100 miles to Hilton Head, 75 miles to Head. Like, we never pulled the car over. It's like, Dad, Dad, stop, 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 we got the sign. I get out of the car, swim trunks on, floaties. Like, you hug the sign, you're like, we're here, right? <laughs> no, you're not there, right? <laughs> Keep driving. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. But I can understand. I can understand why people get hung up on the sign, why people get hung up thinking, that if I don't have marriage, if I don't have sex, if I don't have family, if I don't have all of these realities, then my life will be diminished. I get it. I get why people feel that. Like, the only right, reason why anybody would feel that is because it is so good. It is so good. It is so holy. It is so beautiful. It's, it's the holiest. You know it's the holiest because it's the most maligned, it's the most attacked. You can't profane, like, (laughs) you can't profane a dishwasher. It's just utterly mundane. But you can profane marriage. You can profane the body. Desecrate, you can, I think that's what I was looking for, you can desecrate marriage. If you want to know what's most holy, look at what's most desecrated, most attacked. Okay. So if sex is so holy, if it is so good, if marriage and family is such a powerful, beautiful sign, as I've been saying, then why in the world would anybody willingly give up sex and marriage and family for their entire life as a priest or as a consecrated religious, as a celibate? because there's actually something even better than marriage and sex and intimacy and spousal love and family life and it's God. A little cliffhanger. Let's take a 3-minute break. There were many, many times when I was in the seminary when I would meet people and we'd be in conversation they'd ask what, you know, what what do you do? Oh, I'm in school. What are you in, where where are you in school? Or what are you studying? Oh, I'm, you know, Studying theology, what are you going to do with that? Um, Be poor. Uh, um, That's when you say, "Okay, am I going to tell them I'm studying to be a priest, or do I say something that will make them stop asking me questions? Oftentimes, I would tell them the truth. And then often, complete strangers, mind you, would say to me, you mean you're never going to have sex? And so I started saying, wait, what? (laughs) Which I thought was pretty fun. (laughs) Nobody told me. (laughs) It's not written on the door, you know? You walk in, guess what? Some guy sharpening a knife, you know? (laughs) When St. John Paul II... When St. John Paul II was teaching the world about marriage and sex and love and desire in this beautiful catechesis called the Theology of the Body, this five-year teaching project, when he began, he first started teaching about celibacy and priesthood before he started teaching about marriage. Celibacy in the catechesis came first, and he references Christ's words. The conversation he has with the Sadducees and the Pharisees when they ask that whole Hypothetical question about, you know, you got this woman who's married to all these different guys in this life, and then she finally dies, and then she goes to heaven, who is she going to be married to, Jesus, you dummy, and he goes, in heaven, they neither marry, nor are they given in marriage, in other words, marriage as the earthly sign gives way to the heavenly reality, like the earthly holy communion of spouses, gives way to the holy communion of saints as we're caught up in union with the Trinity. Union with God. Union with God. That's where it begins. He's teaching us, John Paul II, by starting with celibacy, is teaching us about our final destiny, which is unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's glorious beyond all our imagining. I know know I've talked about this before, but like St. Paul, I I get rattled when I hear Paul say, I count all the suffering of the present age as nothing compared to the glory to be revealed in us. Like just, just take your suffering. Imagine someone saying to you, like all of the suffering that you've endured. Imagine them just like, dismissing it, just completely. Like saying, just your, it's nothing. And then the suffering of everybody in this room, which like, if we all saw each other's stories, we would be weeping for what we've all gone through at different points. And then you take all the suffering of every person who's alive, who's ever lived, and who will ever live from like, the worst little paper cut that just burns in the shower and gets snagged on the towels to like the holocaust and the killing fuels of Cambodia and like the hundreds of millions of corpses of communism in Soviet Russia somehow somehow the glory that is heaven makes that Just like, what the heck is this glory? So, what is celibacy? What is a celibate? Someone who has freely given up earthly marriage and everything that comes with it to devote themselves entirely to God and God's people, to live in union with God here and now, to be entirely devoted to the kingdom. So it's, it's like being a creature that lives with one foot in both worlds. And this is why, exteriorly, priests wear what we wear, to be an outward sign that I have died to the good things of this world, all the beautiful things that this world could give me, and I'm making present in this world, by my very embodiment, the kingdom among us. That there is something more beyond the grave, and that something more is far more insane Far more beautiful than all the beautiful things that you've ever experienced in your life. We're making present, we're priests are the living proclamation that God is better than sex. That should be a (laughs) t-shirt. I just thought of that. That would get some letters written. (laughs) Be like, well, it's true. It's true. Tell me I'm wrong. This is true because, as St. Augustine said, back to that idea of anthropology, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. Right? Like, we have this infinite Grand canyon size hole in our hearts that all of the good marbles of this world cannot fill. Like, it's just too much. It's just too much. Celibacy and priesthood... It is not a rejection of sexuality. This is very important. It's not a rejection of sexuality. It is a living out of the deepest meaning of sexuality. Right, because sexuality is, is designed by God to proclaim, I am destined for union with God. That's where it's all headed. The body of every man, the body of every woman, destined for union with God, and celibacy is living that reality now, living that reality now. What I want to do with the time that remains, I want to kind of get a little personal with you guys and share my story a bit uh, more. I know at the very beginning of the year, I shared some of that story, but I want to get a little bit more, like we're really good friends now, so let's dive in. Look at this picture. Can you find your priest? No. <laughs> so you got from the right, you've got Father Ryan Mann, then that's me as a 19-year-old seminarian, Father Terry Grachanin, and Father Patrick Anderson. circa 2008. I entered Borromeo Seminary, as I told you, after a um, interesting battle with the Lord between my senior year and freshman year of college. I felt the Lord calling me to seminary when I was, it began my junior year. Like that sense of like, maybe there's something else that I'm being called to in this life. Like it was the sense that I was driving the car of my life. And then all of a sudden there's this other passenger in the car named Jesus who was like occasionally just like reaching over to like, like, how about I do a little steering? I'm like, get your hands off the wheel. You know, it was very—it was not Carrie Underwood. Like, Jesus, do not take the wheel. I'm in charge. I'm telling you where we're going, right? But this other hand was reaching into my will. It seemed that that junior, fresh, junior year, senior year of high school, into my freshman year of college, and it terrified me. The thought that, like, the thought that I was going to be led into this life of utter depravity and misery. Like, I got an application to the seminary when I was a senior in high school, but I never filled it out. I was like, too afraid that there was like a spring-loaded Roman collar in there that I opened it up and like, whoosh, you know, and like, you're going to hell, you know, like, I don't want to go to the
0: seminary. Um,
1: I had an application, I never filled it out. I was too afraid. I was too afraid of the thought that my life would be deprived. I didn't want my life to be deprived. I wanted an unbelievably full life. And I thought that if I let my hands off of the steering wheel, that I was going to just careen into a ditch of misery, that it just wasn't going to work out. Well, after a a powerful encounter with the Lord, my freshman year of college, where I was just, I was in a state of just misery, just, just like the thing about God is he, he respects us. He's, he's, he's kind in that way. He's gentlemanly in that way. It's like, if you don't want this, I will give you what you want. He gave me everything I wanted at Dayton. I had a great girlfriend. I had great grades. I had straight A's in all my classes. I had awesome friends. I had, like, I wasn't partying. I was, I was behaving myself, all of those things. And I couldn't make myself happy. Because it turns out, if you are trying to live life apart from God's will, it's just not going to work out. So I was in adoration. I just felt the Lord speak deep into my heart, not with words audibly, but he spoke and he just said, how about we try this my way and don't be afraid. And I'm just crying out of every orifice of my face, tears, snot. It was ugly. One of those, <laughs> one of those kind of cries, you know, and I decided I went to the seminary that next fall. I entered Bormeo in the fall of 2008, hoping, begging, anticipating that Just do like one year, maybe one semester, maybe one year, get this out of my system, and then I can go back to college and find a girl and, you know, make a lot of new Catholics. That was my plan. (laughs) Notice there was like like no reality attached to this (laughs) fantasy. There was like another person involved. Anyway, what I found, though, was like an incredible community of men who were like, we were all in the same boat and we were all seasick together. <laughs> That's what it was. We were all men who were, had been touched deeply by Jesus, who were seeking after holiness, who wanted the fullness of life, who wanted to be a radical gift given to people. We wanted this incredible adventure and we, we, we made each other better. It was an amazing, amazing experience. We we're very blessed with the seminary that we have in Cleveland. It's very holy First, it's very human, and because of that, it's holy and healthy. It's very human. So but as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid in college seminary, I wasn't really thinking about um, I wasn't really thinking about like the end of the road, the end of the destination. My heart really wasn't in the, the mode of thinking about, you know, ultimate things marriage, priesthood. I mean, I just was really enjoying formation. Well, fast forward to my first year of uh, theology studies. I was in first theology, and the seminary went to the March for Life in DC. And we attended this uh, display exhibit put on by the Sisters of Life. And there was, we're going to run over time a little bit, just so you know, deacon mea culpa, mea culpa. It was those three minutes. Mea maxima culpa, Okay, So if you have to leave, you're free to leave. But we're going to run over a little bit. It's just what we have to do, (laughs) Okay. So uh, we were at the Sisters of Life, and the, uh, there was a display where this, you'd, you had this headset and you were listening to these people tell stories, their story. And there was this story of this guy who was sharing that him and his college girlfriend, they were, um, they've been dating since high school, and she called him out of the blue one day and said, hey, are you, are you sitting down? He's like, yeah. And she, I just took a pregnancy test, and I'm pregnant. And he was like on this big scholarship. He was going places, all these things. And he just said, so I told her, you, you got you to gotta take care of that. And he hung up the phone and just didn't respond to calls or texts from her for the next few weeks. Horrible. He said that I went to the chapel one day just to like, because I was so haunted by this. He went to the chapel, he was praying, and then he was overcome with this deep sense of peace and this intense joy that he said, I was excited that I was going to be a dad. So I ran out of the church, I called my girlfriend, apologized profusely, said, I think we can do this. So that's, We can do this. She said, I, I had the abortion. I don't, I don't know who this guy was, I don't know who this girl was, I don't know them from anybody. But that story kicked a door down in my heart that I didn't even know was there. This door, this place in me that said, I want to be a dad. I want to be a dad. And I came back to the seminary, and everything felt like, what am I doing here? Like, this is the place. You know what happens at the end of this conveyor belt? It's like just stamping out priests. Like, you're just going to, like, if you stay here, you're, you're not going to get to be married. You're, you're going to be a priest. And I was freaking out. And then that summer, one of my best friends from childhood, him and his high school girlfriend, they got married. And my buddy, Jeff Barnish, who's a priest now, we were groomsmen in this wedding. And, Je- and Bob was this you can see Bob was, he was a big, strong football player guy. Bob loves when I tell this story. <laughs> Ellie, she's this little thing. Ellie leads Bob out on the dance floor for their first dance, which was to this song. She leads him out there, and Bob just is like, there's tears coming down his cheeks. And she's just like looking up at him, and she's just wiping the tears from beneath his eyes. And I was just leveled, absolutely leveled. The, the thought that like my friends are married. Like I could be married. Bob's married. I could be married. And it unlocked another place in my heart that says, I want to be espoused. But I'm in the seminary. A year or so after their wedding, they had a miscarriage, which was really hard. But then they had uh, these guys. So you've got Isaiah, who's the bigger guy right there, and Matthias, this was obviously his baptism. And then more came along. Xavier, this little guy, he's my godson. Here's the Power Ranger trio. <laughs> Here's me and Zave last Saturday at his fourth birthday party. And now they've got uh, another little brother to love on named Fulton. There was this deep, deep longing that opened up in me, this deep Longing to be espoused, to be a gift given away, and to be a dad. And I remember looking around at the seminary and thinking, like, none of these guys, these priests, none of them look like, none of them look like they're espoused. None of them really feel like dads. Jesus, I do not understand how you'll ever be able to touch these desires, and I was so stuck because I didn't, I didn't feel like he was leading me out of the seminary. But I didn't see how it was going to ever satisfy. Like, I remember I went and visited a friend of mine who was at Franciscan University that semester. And they have, during the semesters, they have those uh, festivals of praise. Adoration, praise and worship music. And I swear that night, it was like young dad's night. Like, there were dads everywhere with like... Babies, there's like baby here, baby here, baby on the shoulders, guys spinning babies over their heads, <laughs> tossing babies, you know, not true. But I'm, I, like, I remember sitting in the back of the field house in the blessed sacraments, miles away on the altar, looking at Jesus and saying like angrily, because it's like, like how will you ever, like look how far away you are. How will you ever be able to like actually touch this real heart that i have with these real desires like i felt like if i did this like the best i was going to get was like little drips of consolation being so parched throughout life like i guess this is what it will be white knuckle it your way through it and i was like thirsty for niagara falls move into the end of second theology. So I've been sitting in this ache for like a year now and change, begging him to lead me out of the seminary, begging him to take me away. And sitting in holy hour one day, I'm just sitting there. Again, I just opened this place up in my heart to him. And he like spoke this to me. He said, O priest of Jesus Christ, you will never have the hand of a loving spouse to clasp in yours, but daily your simple fingers will tenderly grip the humility of God veiled by bread. You will never abruptly rise to soothe the cries of wailing infant, nor stand athwart to monsters beneath the bed. But often enough, you will go whenever summoned to the bedside of the dying to comfort and anoint perspiring foreheads chasing away real monsters. You will never comfort a sick third grader home from school with the flu, but you will don your stole to console and absolve countless sin sick children who long to be healed You will never cherish a little princess who will steal your heart and wrap you around her little finger, but you will introduce countless souls to the Prince of Peace who sacrificed all for them. You'll never have to stay up late, worried sick about the kids, but you will always be searching the horizon, poised to run out and meet the prodigals who have wandered from home. You will never read bedtime stories, but nightly you will intercede on behalf of your children, praying for their protection and peace. You will never watch your bride walk down the aisle with tears in her eyes for you, but you will stand at the foot of the altar as Christ's bride approaches to consummate in Holy Communion. You will never grow old with the one you love, the one you love will make you ever new. My God, what a life. And it is yours, O priest of Jesus Christ. Like when Jesus says, like whoever gives up mother or father or wife or children or sister or brother or lands for my sake, Will receive a hundredfold. He's really not kidding. There is, there's an indescribability to the priesthood. There's like an essential felt loneliness to it. Because you can never really answer the question, "How you doing?" You can never really answer the question, what's new? Because what you do is beyond words most time, most days. Like your office is people's pain and people's hearts, tombs where people are just living in hopelessness the worst days of people, li- people's lives and the best days of people's lives. Everything, everything you get to experience, you have courtside seats, the greatest miracles. And none of it, none of it comes from you, but all that comes through you. You get to be the Palm Sunday donkey that Jesus rides into people's lives. And it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. A priest is not someone who just does certain things. Like a priest is someone who is a certain thing. Like it, you are a father. You are a spouse. Like, the spiritual is more real than the natural. The supernatural is more real, more potent, more life-giving than the natural, which means that spiritual fatherhood, priestly fatherhood, is the real thing. And earthly fatherhood is the sign that points to the real. It's truly a remarkable thing that God has given fathers a priesthood, and priests of fatherhood, like despite all of the cultures and all of the terrible theology in the church that wants to reduce priests to like presider, celebrant, um, pastoral minister, people still call you father because that's what you are. This is why priesthood is reserved to men because it's not about doing functions. It's not about just carrying out certain duties. Like a priest participates in the eternal spiritual generation of the Father, of God the Father. Like that's why a man studies to be a priest in the seminary. In the seminary, he's supposed to be learning how to inseminate the heart of the bride, to put divine life in the bride, to generate the son in the virginal womb of the church, in the womb of people's hearts. And remember the, the image, how can you forget, the image of the sperm racing to that egg, right? This image of powerful potency, this image of earthly fatherhood, right? It's a sign It's it's merely an icon of the supernatural fertility that God works through the priest. You really do generate new life in people. Like, when when people ask the question, why can't women be priests, it reveals to me that they just don't know what a priest is. Like, I used to be able to say intelligibly, in a world that made sense, well, why can't mommies be daddies? (laughs) You used to be able to say that. People are like, well, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Now they're like, well, they can. You're like, oh, gosh. You've been watching the Grammys. When Christ instituted this hierarchical church, right, when he established Peter as the first pope and the apostles as the bishops, he did so not to create an organization where there's a power structure. He didn't establish the hierarchy to lord it over, the church. He established the hierarchy to be the perpetual reminder to the church, the bride, that your primary job is to open as the bride to receive divine life. Like Ratzinger puts it this way, in the, it's in the catechism, that the, the Marian dimension of the church, which is to say the open, let it be done unto me according to thy word, that aspect of the church, precedes, he says, the Petrine dimension, the hierarchy, the authority, the, the bishops, the priests, the cardinals, that the primary role of the church is to open and receive. People ask all the time, just a few more minutes, just a few more minutes. People ask all the time. They want to know what's the best part of priesthood or the hardest part of priesthood. or What's the most surprising part of priesthood? Here's what I'll say to all of that. The best part of priesthood is when you see people get it. Like when you see, when you see people encounter him, when you see people suddenly open and they've received something deeply, you see that like through you, God has put something new in this person's heart. It's 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 similar to the unbelievable joy that I would imagine a new father feels when his wife shows him one of these. You mean that through me there's now new life in you? And like when you hear from the bride when you hear the church sharing things like like the signs of a transformed life, the things that are happening, the way that they're dealing with things differently, it is something like i'm sure when she says i you can feel him kick put your hand right here you can feel him move priesthood is fatherhood to see life being generated in the heart of the bride is so incredible the hardest part the hardest part by far is being faced constantly with your utter poverty There's never enough time to save all the starfish. There's always too much. The, the need is endless. And my humanity is so finite. Like it's hard. Some days it's really, really hard. to want to be able to be there for everything, to connect with everybody, to be a gift to everybody. But you're just one man. And there's always more starfish. It's, it's, this, it's living this mystery. There are thousands of people on this field, Jesus, and they all are hungry. And they're going to faint if they leave. They need something. And he says, give them something yourself. What do you have? I've got a guy who's about 6'1", 260, 34 years old, balding with a great beard. That's all I've got. (laughs) That's all I've got. I've got the same number of hours in the day as everybody. I've got the same amount of energy as everybody. This is all I have. And somehow he just says, well, bring that to me. The most surprising part by far is the, what I call the splashback Grace that like you get to be used as this instrument in people's lives and that's insanely awesome. But then the grace that comes back as you experience that from people, like there are things that have happened in confession with people that would be such amazing stories to shout from the rooftops, literally watching Lazarus come out of the tomb, dead people coming back to life. But you can't tell anybody. It's as if God has said, I have reserved this one just for you. And you get to take this one to the grave. Before we close, I just want to say this that, that both of these sacraments, both of these sacraments, matrimony and holy orders, they invite us into the spousal love of Christ, like Christ who pours himself out, like at the center of the Mass. The center of the faith, we hear Jesus say, this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. When a husband and wife come to the church on the day of their wedding, they come to say Christ's words. This is my body given for you. Over and over and over again, they'll say these words in toil, in frustration, in job loss, in pregnancies that are hard, in breastfeeding, in coaching, and bandaging boo-boos, and carrying all the luggage through the airport, through all of that, this is my body given for you. You dance the dance all the way to glory. Or the priest who stands at the altar to offer the sacrifice, who at his ordination is told by the bishop, conform your life to the mystery of the cross. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Like this is the only way to have life. This is the only way to have life to give it away, to lay it down, to pour it out, to be a gift. You must bind yourself in self-offering to another. Like whether you're consecrated or religious priests, you got to lay your life down. It's all the same mystery. It's all the same gift. We are all invited by Jesus to be taken and blessed and broken, and then given. Let's watch.